So what really makes people buy? What makes us do anything? You just watch some commercials. Commercials are a billion dollar business. They really affect the way we think, what we buy, what we eat, what we dress, what we wear. They're the primary source of influence in our society, many people believe, maybe even more than our schooling system. The average child today, by the time they're 18 years old, have spent more time in front of a television set being exposed to these programming devices or these selling devices than they have literally been in school itself. So it might be useful to see for organizations to spend that much money and time, what do they believe the process of influence really is? What is the science of persuasion? And I'm here to tell you that it's not probably what you and I were traditionally taught. Traditional sales taught me, at least, that what you're supposed to do is find somebody's needs, and of course you knew what those were before you arrived, and what you're supposed to do is fill those needs, and by filling those needs, the customer would buy. That's true, and it's not true. Like a lot of things in white, maybe it's not quite as black and white as that. I would say to you that people don't really buy needs per se, at least that's not what they buy first. What people really buy are wants. Think about it. There are a lot of needs people have, but they still don't do anything about it. We don't do anything about it till we really want something, till we're motivated. I believe that selling is the process of motivation. That literally, if you watch a commercial, it is a motivational device designed to influence your behavior and it is extremely successful. That's why they run them over and over and over again. Whether it be that traditional image that you see of AT&T, where you reach out and touch somebody, or whether it be something like Share, now promoting you know, holiday health spas. All of these things have one thing in common that I want you and I to really take a look at in this particular tape. And that is, how long does it really take to influence people? And what is the actual process in reality compared to what you and I have been taught? Because there is a rather big difference. And that big difference, I think, is seeing that influence happens in a moment. It doesn't happen through a 45-minute sales presentation. It's like all those things in the sales presentation set up a moment or two where a person all of a sudden links up in their head that this is something they really want desperately, that it relates to a deep desire and they can justify it. And those are the two elements we're going to talk about. How to build tremendous want for your product and how to be able to let people, now that they want to be able to justify getting it. And as I said in the first tape, and I'll remind you of this, and I'll probably say this a lot, if you get people to want something bad enough, they'll usually find a way to justify it with just a little bit of help from you. So what is the process? What makes us not only buy, but literally do anything? The answer is really simple. Everything we do, we do for a reason or a series of reasons. But what kind of reasons do we use? The primary motivating factor behind all human behavior is the desire to avoid pain and the desire or need to gain pleasure. Those two twin forces are what drive all human behavior. Everything you do is some description or some outlay of that particular idea. I want to take something simple. Ladies in the audience, raise your hand if you're wearing makeup. Come on, raise your hand, people will notice how good. Now, I got a question for you. Why are you wearing makeup today? Did you wake up this morning and think to yourself, God, I love this process. <laughs> I just can't wait to put this stuff on. I doubt it. <laughs> you know, one woman here with drugs, but everybody else is okay. okay. But how many of you woke up this morning and you didn't really want to put on your makeup? It was early, you're coming to class, but you decide, well, I'm going to put it on because by putting it on, what it would mean to me is, you know, I feel better about myself. Or what it means is people will feel more attracted to me or think I look better. How many of you did it for that reason? Okay, you too. Raise your hand. I see you there. <laughs> okay. And how many of you, though, didn't do it for those reasons? You, you thought... <laughs> I don't want to do this. In fact, you thought, how come men don't have to do this? 
You know, but you thought, ah, I better do it because if I don't, somebody's going to say, what happened to your face? <laughs> How many did it for that reason? Come on. <laughs> so we do things in life for one of two reasons. We either do it to gain pleasure or avoid pain, and sometimes obviously a combination of the two, but those are the twin forces of motivation for all human behavior. So if you and I want to persuade someone of anything, we have to understand that people don't just do things because we tell them to. People do things for reasons. In other words, people have to associate the action of buying to creating tremendous pleasure and the action of not buying to creating pain. That is the master formula to persuasion. Traditionally, what people think of is, even if they think of selling as something like motivation, they try and get somebody really pumped up and they say, you know, gosh, if you get this, you'll get all these benefits. But I'm here to tell you that you can't just have somebody motivated out of their desire to want. You've also got to have them associate in their mind, actually feel that not buying would be painful. What do I mean painful? That they would be missing something, that they would be losing, that they would be alone. Any emotional wound or hurt, because I want you to know this, and I know this sounds horrible, but I believe the best study of life is how it is, not how we think it should be. And the best study of life is this, in my opinion. In everything that I've researched or studied, people will do more to avoid pain than they will ever do to get pleasure. Uh, I'll give you a classic example. Which are you more motivated to do? Save $1,000 or keep someone from stealing $1,000 that's in your pocket? I would suggest to you that for most people, they're going to try and hang on to what they've got. They're going to try and avoid what they would consider to be losing or pain. So what we're going to talk about then is how can we create these twin motivations happening and do it with integrity and do it with elegance. I'm not talking about manipulating somebody or lying to them or showing them something that's not there. I'm talking about assisting them in getting what they want by utilizing the most powerful force within them for creating change. Now, when I'm talking about this, what we're really talking about then in terms of emotions is we're talking about consequences. You and I, as salespeople, as persuaders, must sell consequences. Positive consequences if someone does well, in other words, the heaven if you do, and negative consequences if they don't. Now, we can't be so blatant to come out and just say that, because if you just come out and say that, the prospect will go, you're just trying to sell me. So there is a process to get to this point. Obviously, one, that prospect's going to have some questions in their mind. Question number one they're probably going to have is, do you really have their best interest in mind? Can they trust you? Are you here just to make a sale? You know, can, when you say something, is it you know, being filtered through your needs and desires, or is it really about them? And that's why when we get into the actual step-by-step -step sales process, I'm going to teach you 10 steps to sales mastery. And of course, one of those will be able to create that incredible bond where people know who you are, that you're not just some person popping around here who's just kind of cramming a stale, but you're a professional who definitely cares. And if you can't meet their needs, you're not going to. You're going to get a great referral and help somebody you can help and make a great friend in the process. And if they get that and know that, that'll eliminate that first question. The next questions they're going to have in their mind are, well, you know, what is this? What's in it for me? And what has to happen for them to get persuaded is, is they must link in their mind or associate. They're going to get what they want most in the world through this product. Let me give you an example then. If I said to you, would you please go jump off a cliff? All right? What are you going to do? Well, probably, unless you're in a deep trance, <laughs> You probably say, well, what are you, crazy? I'm not going to do this. Why not? There's only one reason. You associate to jumping off a cliff negative consequences, pain, a form of pain, like death, for example. And so, sure enough, you're not going to go for it. If I said to you, would you please go kiss uh, Tom Selleck if you're a woman, or would you please go kiss uh, some extremely attractive woman? I don't think of any of those because I have a wife who I totally love. And um, <laughs> it's just true. 
And the bottom line, though, is if you had some ultimate man or woman in your mind, and I said, would you please go kiss that person? How many of you want to do it? Let me see a show of hands there. Oh, come on, raise your hand. I see you. Make sure you're paying attention here. Good. The bottom line is, the reason you're willing to do that is you would associate what to it? Pleasure. Now, if I said, I want you to kiss them, and, but while you're there, your spouse is right next to you watching very closely. <laughs> now you've got another association. My point is what the meaning of what something's going to feel for you, whether it's going to mean pain or whether it's going to mean pleasure, will determine how you're going to behave. But here's what's interesting. Meaning is something that's learned. We've learned to link or associate certain feelings to certain situations. For example, how many of you like to have, let's say, a Mercedes-Benz? How many like to have one of those? Ah, quite a few of you. Good. So, isn't it amazing how I can see your hands going up? This is pretty exciting, isn't it? Seriously. Question. Why do you want a Mercedes-Benz? Why do you want one? Tell me. Think about it. And the answers I usually get are things like, well, um, because, you know, it's, it's the best. And I'm the best, so I want the best. Or somebody will say something like, well, it, because the feeling it'll give me. Or somebody will say, well, because it's good transportation. <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> the reality is, people don't buy needs. When you go to buy a Mercedes, you're not buying because you need a Mercedes. Now, the truth is, if you want something bad enough, it becomes a need, doesn't it? But the point is that a person buys a Mercedes. Now, not all people want them, by the way. You didn't all raise your hands. Some people don't. They go, what are you, stupid? I wouldn't want a Mercedes. I want a Hyundai. <laughs> why? Because, I mean, for that Mercedes, I could have 16 Hyundais. Right? I mean, why would I do that? That would be stupid. Now, one person would not buy a Mercedes because they associate buying a Mercedes is wasteful. It's stupid, which are forms of words we might call painful. Does that make sense? We have different words for pain. There are different levels of pain. Pain could be physical pain. It could be humiliation. It could be, well, pain of frustration. It could be the pain of inconvenience. And some are more painful than others. That person likes having a Mercedes would mean you know, having this big payment, let's say, and that inconvenience and hassle, or it'd be not being intelligent, be wasteful, so they're not going to do it. They're going to do a Hyundai because what do they want? They want a feeling of being intelligent, okay? The person who wants a Mercedes, they got a whole different thing. They want prestige. They want knowing they're the best. They want other people to notice. They want status, let's say. So my point is this, that in selling, we cannot just assume we know what's going to be painful for one person and pleasurable for another. The part of the process of selling, obviously, then is finding out that person's beliefs and values. Finding out what do they link to things. See, when you walk in the room and if you introduce yourself and say, hey, I'm a salesperson, guess what? Boom! Instantly, a lot of people have certain states they associate to salespeople that are less than pleasurable. They may associate salesperson equals pushy person who doesn't care and tries to manipulate me. And no matter who you are, immediately they get that feeling and they want to avoid being around you. So it's not personal, right? What you got to do, though, is change what people associate in order to change their behavior. So if you're trying to market a, a particular product, let's say, for example, I bought recently a, a 750IL BMW. And the reason I did it is, first of all, I needed a new car. <laughs> no. I had a Mercedes-Benz, and you know, I've had it for a while, and I was kind of bored with it, and you know, the time was up on it. I had a lease on it. And I thought, well, I need to go get a new car. So I went to the Mercedes-Benz dealership, walked on in, looked at the car, 560 SEL, you know, same car. There was nothing really different on it, in my opinion, for me. It just didn't feel different to me. So I didn't feel any new wants being triggered. Are you following me? There was nothing there. It was like the same car, a little bigger engine, everything else, and it's going to cost me $20,000 more. So what am I associating to this? I'm associating more pain to buying than not buying. And you might want to make a note of that. If a person does not buy, it's really simply because of this. They associate more pain to buying than not buying. And if a person does buy, it's because they associate much more pleasure to buying 
than not buying. Buying means pleasure, not buying means pain. That's how to get someone to buy. Buying means pain, <laughs> and not buying means pleasure is a way to make sure they do not follow through. Are you following me on these? So here I go, and I go to the dealership, and there's no want in me. I don't have a need. I don't have a pain. I don't have a problem to solve. I already have this car. I'm already satisfied. And what I'd like you to realize is that in order to get someone to do anything, in order to motivate them, what you really got to be able to do is get them to a point where they're dissatisfied with the way things are. I mean, think about it. If somebody is overweight and they're not changing, it's because they're not dissatisfied enough. Your job and my job in working with people is to find out what are their strong wants. Show them they're not getting it so they get dissatisfied enough. They feel a little hurt. They go, gosh, I really do want this. I really do want to be thin. I really do want to have something that's the best. And it becomes so strong that now they're compelled to really make a change. That is make a purchase. That is do something about it. See, if somebody just stays overweight, it's because no one has come in there and hurt them. I believe, and I know this doesn't sound great, and it may sound like, if you know me, different than how I think, but again, I think this is really the truth, that selling is the process of finding people's pain, disturbing them, stirring up their pain, making them feel the hurt, and then healing it through new sets of choices, usually in the form of your products or services. It's a hurt them and heal them business. If you doubt it, watch a commercial. Watch AT&T. That commercial, the Reach Out and Touch Me commercial, has made them more money and been more successful than any commercial they ever did. Why does it work? Because in that commercial, they don't go, call your mother. They don't do that. They don't go, I know you miss your mother, call her. That's not what they do. What they do is they get you to associate tremendous pain to not calling her and what? Pleasure to calling her. How do they do it? In a few minutes, they go in in this commercial and the first thing they do is they stab you. <laughs> They have your mom there, or the representation of your mom there, going, gosh, you know, I haven't talked to my son in so long, and he probably doesn't even care, right? Hurt, hurt, and, you know, pain. They don't just say, call your mother. They, like, stick a knife in there and turn it, right? So you feel it real good. They want you to feel it, because people do things for emotional reasons, and they justify them with logic. We don't do things for logical reasons. We do them for emotional reasons, you know? So the bottom line is they got you emotional now, and they got you having some pain, so now you're what? You're motivated. You're definitely motivated to make a change, and they show you how you can heal the wound. And how do you heal it? By picking up this piece of plastic and using a line called AT&T. And sure enough, they give you the pleasure. They make you associate pleasure to making that call. And sure enough, in some sections of the country, AT&T increased the number of long-distance calls more than 500%. And the reason some sections of the country is, well, we'll talk about that when we talk about values. But certain people have certain values that that particular commercial triggers. In other words, it triggers a stronger want than other people. The point is, that is the process. I call it the Dickens pattern, if you will. I believe that selling is a great deal of the Dickens pattern. In other words, think about it. You saw the movie, or read the book, hopefully, Christmas Carol. What happened? We had a guy, we had a prospect here who had no need. Right? He made it clear. I don't need to have this experience of being with other people. I don't need, let's say, the product was giving. I don't need to have any of this giving stuff. Bah humbug. So that's probably the toughest client you're going to have, isn't it? Somebody has, says, I have no need up front. They don't even want to hear your presentation. Stay away from me. How do you deal with that kind of person? Answer? Well, we're going to go through a detailed process, but the general answer is this. Number one, you've got to find out enough about that person to find a problem that they have. You've got to find a hurt. You gotta find out what is something they want but they're not getting. And they may say that there's nothing, but do you know a person alive who, has a, who is without something that they want that they're not getting if you really, really probe and look? So you gotta find, number one, a deep want or interest, and then number two, you gotta disturb them. 
And number three, you got to show them how to solve it by using your product. Think about how they did it in A Christmas Carol. I have no need. I don't have this thing for giving. Well, what happened is these good salesmen arrived that evening. <laughs> and they showed up. And what they did is they disturbed this man, didn't they? They showed up, and what they did is they made it really real to him that not having this product called giving in his life was going to create tremendous pain in his past that it already had, in the present right now, and in the future. Now, did they make this up? No, what they did was they asked him to go and have an experience. And we're going to show you how to do that in the selling process, how to get people to actually experience something they may not have been paying attention to. He was having pain, but he wasn't feeling it. So what these salesmen, these master salesmen, these ghosts did, is they came in and they opened the wound, and they stirred him up. They made him hurt. They disturbed him, and they got him so disturbed that he was motivated to change. And motivating, once somebody's motivated to change, the rest is easy. All you do is offer them a choice, and they're excited, and they go for it. That's the process as I perceive selling. And what you might want to write in your notes is this, that an undisturbed prospect will not buy. And the challenge that most salespeople run into is, number one, they treat everybody like they have the same wants. Instead of finding out what is this person's real deep wants or interests. And everybody's got one. Everybody's got a want or interest, and they've got some aspect of it that's not being fulfilled. Unfortunately, this also happens with my wife. We were in New York City recently, and um, we're staying at the Plaza Hotel. And it's interesting how the, the environment around you can affect your wants. And sure enough, within a day or two, Becky's turning to me, and she's got this hurt look on her face, and she says, Tone, she goes, everybody else here has a mink coat. <laughs> I'm going, everybody else? Right? But all of a sudden, she had no desire for a mink coat. But all of a sudden, we're in New York City, and she sees all these other people have it, and all of a sudden, she actually had a hurt. She had no hurt before. It's like, if you take your three children, or how many children you have, but take my three children, and I take and give them all a half glass of fresh-squeezed orange juice. And they don't normally get orange juice, let's say. They're pretty happy, aren't they? What happens, though, if the next day I give two of them three-quarters of a glass and one of them a full glass? Are they all happy? No. What happens immediately is two of them, instead of saying, God, I got three-quarters of a glass, I got a quarter more than I did yesterday, they immediately think what? How come they got one and I don't? And they feel hurt. They feel lost. This is the process that keeps the American economy going. <laughs> See, I'm here to tell you, people don't buy needs. They buy wants. That's what they buy. And by the way, you go, well, that's terrible. As a salesperson, I only want to sell what people really need. Their wants are needs for people. Those are the real needs. If all people ever did was buy what they needed, then we would be in a very deep depression. Because if you think about most of the purchases you make, I doubt very seriously if they're all really necessities. So let's be salespeople. Let's be persuaders by understanding that persuasion is not closing somebody. If you're having to close somebody hard at the end, it says one thing to me. You haven't motivated them enough up front. You haven't created enough want. So let's write some definitions here. One, what is persuasion? Persuasion is the process of getting your customer to clearly associate their most desired feelings or states to your product or service. So I'll say that again. Persuasion is the process of getting your customer to clearly associate their most desired feelings or states to your product or service. In other words, what we're saying here is if we want somebody to buy we got to get them to link to our product the feelings they want most. And we've got to make it compelling and very real for them. 
And the second aspect of selling is we must get these people to associate not buying. In other words, if their association is if I don't buy, it's going to mean pain. I'm going to miss this opportunity. I'm going to miss out on being able to use this right now. I'm going to, someone else is going to have something I don't have. Now, you say, well, this sounds very status-oriented. I've just used these because they're humorous examples. But does it also happen on other elements, things that aren't so status-oriented? Think about it. What motivates all of your purchases? What's motivated you in the past? I'd like you right now, just for a moment, to stop and think about a purchase that you've made recently. Think of something you've purchased, a major purchase maybe. Did you buy it because it was need, really? Or was it more because you, you really wanted it? And then it became a need. You began to justify it as a need. What really has motivated you? See, when I think about the things that I've done, I can see that there are certainly necessities that I purchase, but the purchases that I'm actively involved in are where I've been, my want has been stirred up. You know, I, I, um, and I didn't know there was a want before. I recently started learning to fly helicopters, and it's one of my passions. I love it because, you know, you take the doors off and the wind's in your hair and just have a chance to go out and just be. And so that's nice, and I've learned to do that, but all of a sudden I noticed I didn't own one. And that began to bother me. So sure enough, I started to look to buy this little helicopter, two-seat helicopter. But then when it looked like I was going to have that, I noticed that other people had jet helicopters. And it really disturbed me that I didn't have one, but, you know, I couldn't justify it. Till one day, a salesman, when I was there to go fly a helicopter, said, hey, you know, we got this brand new helicopter in. It's the most beautiful helicopter I have ever seen. There's nothing like it anywhere. He said, you should at least come see it. He says, it's just around the corner. Pop in my car. So we did. And sure enough, he stirred me up enough that my want was so strong that I found a way to do it. So I want you to really think about what was a time when you really wanted something, but you didn't follow through. And I would say to you that the difference here is you had reasons to buy emotionally, but you couldn't justify it logically. Let me give you what I think the selling process looks like then. I think it looks like this, that whether we buy or not comes down to this. If we've got ourselves a little weighing device, a teeter-totter, if you will, I'm saying that what's happening all the time, we're measuring. If we're getting motivated, we're now, let's say, fairly motivated to buy, and we've got a lot of reasons to buy. What I call emotional reasons to buy is we want to give people not only emotional reasons to buy, but emotional reasons to buy now. You might want to call that urban. This will be a little character we'll have later in some cartoons. But urban, what I'm looking for when I want to sell someone is I want to find out what are the emotional reasons why they should buy right now. That's the first thing I'm digging for. And I will tell you, the emotional reasons to buy now is I'm looking for um, a want, something they want, and I'm looking for the hurt in it. I want to make sure that they feel that. I want to put a boulder on their decision-making process. So they have this big, giant boulder here as reasons to buy. So they're motivated. I want to get them stirred up. Now, they're weighing that against something I call, um, well, dominant reasons to avoid buying. I call it drab, urban and drab here dominant reasons that they avoid buying, which are usually fears. And the fear is that if I buy, it's going to mean pain. You know, it's going to mean hardship for me financially. Or if I buy, maybe it's not worth it. Or if I buy, maybe um, it doesn't really produce the result that was promised to me. Or if I buy, what if other people judge me for buying this? And they think I'm being extravagant, or they think I'm being dumb, or they think, you know, whatever they think, but I'll be rejected because of it. Or what if I buy, but I don't really need it now? So what's happening is people have certain fears, and what's going to determine which thing they do, whether you buy or whether you not buy, is going to be based simply on one thing. If we have, let's say, a scale here, and up here is buy, and down here is not buy. There's that little arrow on the end. What's going to happen is we need to make sure that we stack this side. We've got to give people enough reasons 
to buy. But again, the reasons need to be emotional and they need to be their reasons, not yours. And that's the common challenge that most salespeople have. Most salespeople, what we do is we try and sell what we love about our product instead of finding out what this person would really love about our product. Now, oftentimes what happens is we're in a balancing act called indecision. Have you ever been there? It's like, God, you really want something, and, but you got these fears, and, and what you are is you're right here in the middle. You know, you can't, they're kind of balanced out of each other. The way to handle this is twofold. The way to kick somebody over the edge, and I hope you'll remember this because this is the foundation of effective selling and closing. If somebody's on the edge and you've got a certain amount of want you know, and you've got a certain amount of concerns, what you've got to do is you've got to put this thing in the kilter. And the quickest way to do that is not to give people necessarily more information, but to create a little more hurt. To actually create more hurt. And what I mean by creating more hurt is ask them questions, like this gentleman did with me with my 750IL. Ask them questions that you know, based on their beliefs and values, will kick them over the edge. See, when he said to me, hey, you know, you can do whatever you want to do, but from what I know about you and what you've told me, driving something you think is second best is not going to make you feel the way you want to feel. It's not worth a few extra dollars, is it? What he did is he made this bolder. By making it hurt, he made it heavier and immediately started to drop down. This goes up and I bought. Does that make sense to you? The second thing then is, if you've done a lot of that and it still isn't happening, you've got to add something else. And the something else is you've got to add another bolder which is the logical reasons to buy now, called Lurbin, L-R-B-N. So we've got Urban, Lurbin, and Drab. And what we're talking about here is we've got to have some logical reasons. And notice that can be a smaller boulder. This thing can be on the edge where all you do is add a little bit of logic, and that's just enough to all of a sudden kick it over the balance point where that person shoots up and now they buy. And that's how I see selling happening. So in order for somebody to buy, in your notes, the thing they need is they need a great deal of want or hurt. And again, hurt is not negative. Stirring up the hurt is not negative. The United States of America is here because we got motivated. Because somebody did something that we felt hurt about. We felt hurt enough that we did something about it. We didn't just sit on our tails and say, well, keep on doing that. Taxation without representation is fine with us. We got upset. We got a little disturbed. We got motivated and it changed our behavior. We got persuaded to change by the environment itself. So make sure that you have hold hurt in a positive way. Okay, because what you get to be, your job is a healer of hurt. The hurt is always there. The AT&T commercial doesn't create the hurt. For you to feel it, it's already there. You just covered it up, put a scab over it, pretend it wasn't there. And what they do is they come in and open up the scab. They come up and smack it. Doesn't that sound juicy? <laughs> but what they do is they come in there and make you feel the pain is there, and then they say, here's a way to get rid of the scab. Just communicate, and we'll provide a great service for you to do it. You don't have to feel alone. You don't have to feel left out. To me, that is an integrity. Some people say, well, that's mean. They're manipulating people. I don't agree. What they're doing is helping people to solve emotional wounds, emotional needs. And if we had no, if all our needs were, were the normal needs of survival and we didn't go for wants, how dynamic would you be as a person in your desire to grow? If all you did was survive. Maybe you've been there. I've been there at one time in my life. I don't want to go back there. I want to have wants, the wants to make a difference in people's lives, the wants to know that my life has some kind of meaning, the wants to know that I, people care about me and I care about them, the wants to be able to play, the wants to succeed, the wants to have things in economics be great, the wants to have total freedom and choice. I want those wants to drive me to become somebody even more. See, in the pursuit of all these wants, I have to become more of a person, a better person, I believe, in order to achieve what I want. 
So I think stimulating wants and creating low hurt is good motivation. I think if somebody's overweight and you care about them, your job should be to be a good persuader. And a persuader is not to nag them, and a persuader is not to tell them. It is to get them to want to change for their reasons. To ask them questions, find a wound in there, and stir it up elegantly, nicely, respectfully, till they're motivated, and then give them a plan. Say, here's what you can do to change. That's persuasion. Now, this process then of adding logic, all you've got to do is give them more information in this case. More info will kick them over the edge. Rarely is this what's needed. What usually is needed is more hurt. So again, what people need then to in order to buy is, number one, they have to have lots of want. And if you're trying to close somebody without a lot of, oh, watch my lips. If you're trying to close somebody without a deep amount of want or a lot of hurt, you're going to have a hard time closing them. You're going to have to take out all those old sales skills, you know, they teach from way back when that they still teach out there if you go to standard sales classes. And you're going to have to learn how to do Ben Franklin's and you're going to have to learn to say, well, sir, I know you feel that way. And, you know, there was a story about the patent office. And any of you who have some sales background know what I'm referring to. They're tried untrue stories that are burnt out to try and push people into a sale. That's garbage. What's real is, let's find out their deepest needs, let's ex get them to experience wanting it even more, let's help them to justify it, let's kick them over the edge so they get to have a quality product that really meets their needs. All this presupposes that you obviously qualify your client. And we're going to talk about that when we take this gathering of information I've been dumping on your brain and we're going to chunk it down into 10 steps. But before we do that, I want you to really get the foundation of it. So, what have we talked about? We've talked about selling as motivation. We've talked about that people don't buy products, they buy states. I mean, think about it. Uh, I see some people in this audience, you know, wearing Rolex watches. Why would somebody spend $9,000 on a watch? It's obvious, right? Because they're durable. <laughs> you know? You didn't do it because you needed a $9,000 watch. You did it because you wanted it. Now, I'm using extreme examples because they're the easiest ones to notice. But if you bought a swatch, you didn't need a swatch either at $19. You bought it because you wanted that color, you wanted that feeling, you wanted what you associated to that. The point of the matter is that what we've got to realize is that whatever we associate to things, that's what's going to determine our behavior. And if people are not behaving the way that we're trying to influence them, we've got to change what they link, change what they associate to our product. And how we go about doing that is the subject of the next state. But I want you to understand the process, how we're going to talk about the process is load up, find enough emotional reasons, stir it up and make it real, add some logic, and push them through the edge so that the reasons for avoiding buying get literally catapulted off the scale. So that now you and the prospect are there together sharing in the process of a successful set. So here's an exercise I want you to do. I'd like you, if you would, to take out a piece of paper and I'd like you to write down three purchases you've made recently. Three purchases. And I want you to make a note how big was your want? What really made you buy? See if what I'm saying is true. See if I'm just making this up or I got some weird ideas. Let's see if it's real. Was it want that pushed you over the edge and logic? What did it for you? I just want you to analyze. Did you have enough want, enough logic? Is what I said true? Or was it something else? So that's the first exercise. The second exercise, and your facilitator will remind you of these, but you should jot them down. The second thing we want you to do is I want you to think of a time when you had a strong want, but you still didn't buy. And I want you to describe in all three of those, come up with three of those also, three times when you had a strong want but you didn't buy. You didn't get kicked over the edge. And I want you to take a look at it and see, was it because you didn't hurt enough, like it wasn't a strong enough want? Or was it because you just didn't find enough ways to justify it? Or is it something else? I think you're going to find it's those two. 
And here's your third exercise, and I think you'll have fun with this. I want you to pick one of those situations where you did not buy and analyze what it was that made you not buy. And I want you to pretend you're the salesperson, and what would you have done to sell yourself? If you were on the other side, knowing what you know now, what would you do? Would you ask a question that stirred up more hurt? Would you have added some logic? What would you have done to kick them over the edge? So I want you to play with urban, lurban, and drab. Emotional reasons to buy now, logical reasons to buy now, and how you can catapult the dominant reasons that people avoid buying right off the scale so there isn't an objection there anymore. If you do this effectively, you will not find yourself at the end trying to push somebody into the sale. Because I got news for you. Those of you who raised your hand at the beginning of this particular talk when I talked about, would you like a Mercedes? How tough a sale would you be walking into a place like that? And so I'm going to have to come in and go, I know this is a tough decision for you. So I'll help you. You know, there was once this great American who had to make tough decisions just like you. His name was Benjamin Franklin. And you know what Ben did when he wanted to buy a Mercedes? Oh, <laughs> Ben would draw a line down a piece of paper. And he'd write on this reason all the reasons why he should do something. And on this side, all the reasons why he shouldn't do something. And then he'd count up the difference, and the one that had the most was the decision he made. Doesn't that make sense? <laughs> I gotta tell you something. If you're still using that, I apologize. I apologize that we as sales trainers have not, as a group, made a greater advance. That was written back in the 1930s. And it's purely based on logic. If you have plenty of hurt and you need some logic, then I guess that's a useful close. You know, someone making a logical difference. And of course, the way they do it, if you'll remember, is they draw a thing and they say, here's all the reasons why you should buy. Here's all the reasons why you should not buy. And you help them get about 50 reasons over here, and you go on this side and you go, you're on your own, babe. <laughs> right? And then you come to the end and go, well, there's 50 here, there's only one here. I guess the answer is pretty obvious, isn't it? The only problem with this is it leaves out something that's critical, and that is, again, write this down. People buy for emotional reasons, and they justify with logic. People do not buy for logical reasons. People buy for emotional reasons, and they justify with logic. Now you may say, Tony, oh, come on, you know, I, you know, I sell to corporations. You know, I sell a computer system. You know, multi-million dollar computer system. And you know, they don't buy for emotional reasons. I'm here to tell you that they do. Uh, I recently did some work for McDonnell Douglas for their computer division where they sell the huge, great, cray, I guess they're called computers. What we're talking about, to be specific, are a multi-million dollar purchase of a particular computer. And in going in and selling that process, a lot of the guys, immediately when I started talking about you know, getting emotional reasons to buy. Now they said, look, there is no emotion in this at all. I'm here to tell you that the emotion is hidden, but it is there. That, for example, if you're going in to sell a computer or say a copier, that people are gonna buy for different reasons. Some people will buy because what they want is the best. And that's a certain style of person. And we're gonna talk about this in detail when we talk about values later on. Some people buy because they want friendship. They buy the product because they wanna be in a relationship with you. Some people buy because the emotion that they really want is they want to be intelligent. And those are the people you think have no emotion. But the emotion is they have to feel intelligent. If they don't, they're really in pain. They want to know they're making the right choice. Right? That sounds like AT&T. <laughs> Nothing like associations, right? Then some people, of course, will make a purchase because they want confidence. Because they think, God, if they'll do this, they'll be more successful. Some people make a purchase because it's about survival for them. But what I want you to know is whatever decisions they make, they are emotional and that they justify them with logic. And that what you want to do is you want to dig for that emotion. You want to find it and disturb it. You want to become a master of the Dickens pattern. 
You want to become a person who can find people's needs, stir them up and stir up their emotions, get them disturbed, disturb them. And the way to do it is ask questions. You can do it easily with questions. If I turned to you right now and said, what's the most screwed up thing in your life? What are you really upset about? If I ask that enough and I've got rapport, you'll probably answer me. But you know what's so nice? I could also ask you, what's the best thing in your life right now? And if you're in a bad state, you might say nothing. I said, well, what, what could you say is great? You'll think of that also. We can control what people focus on, therefore what they feel, just by the questions we ask. And so we're going to show you how to do that in our next tape. But let's go to our exercise. One, make a list of three products you've bought recently and find out what made you buy. How much want did you have? How much logic? How much urban? How much lurban? And what was the dominant reasons you were going to avoid buying that got catapulted out when you weighed them? Okay? And it wasn't an emotional, it wasn't an intellectual weighing. It was a momentary, in a moment, you made a decision. And secondly, think of a situation where you didn't buy and see why. And then thirdly, let's see in that situation, how could you have kicked yourself over the edge? And then come back, and what we're going to do is show how to get people to make those associations, how to get them to link to your product the feelings you really want them to have so they're totally motivated to buy your product now. So let's do the exercise, work with your facilitator, and I'll see you in a moment. Tools of influence. I'd like to go through with you very rapidly seven steps of a sales process that I learned years ago that really guided me whenever I was out with a customer to see where I was in that process. Now we're going to teach you a 10-step process here, but I just think this is a mental checklist for you emotionally as you're going to persuade someone. And then I'd like to share with you what I think are the nine most important tools of influence. We're going to show you how to use all kinds of tools. We're going to show you step-by-step -step what to do to make the sale happen. We're going to show you how to handle objections, but these are the primary tools through which all the changes you want to make in someone's beliefs or approach to buying occur. And that's what really this tape is about. So let's start very quickly with the seven steps to sales. I'd say to you that the first step to being effective in the selling procedure is to set the stage, number one, in your own mind. Now before you ever walk in the door, before you ever meet with that customer, you've got to set the stage. You've got to be really clear what this is about for you, what you want to accomplish, what this person is probably like. You want to make sure that stage is set. And then when you walk in the room, by the way you communicate, by the way you speak, your tonality, your posture, your gestures, your handshake, you set the stage instantly in that prospect's mind as to what a professional you are and what this is really about. So that's step number one. Step number two is as soon as you set the stage, you've got to control the situation. When I was in home selling, one of the things that was concerning would be you would be trying to persuade someone or share something that you thought was valuable, and the television would be going. Somebody would be walking in or out. So what I learned to do was control the situation, to be 100% respectful and to walk up to the television set and say, was it okay if I just turn this off? And sure enough, I would assume the sale. And I'd get their full attention. I want you to write this in your notes. If you do not control the situation in the beginning of the sale, you will never be able to control the situation in the end. And selling, a professional salesperson does not wait and see. They find a person's real needs and they make a decision for the prospect or customer as to what will be best for them based on their ability to qualify them. So you've got to control the situation up front or you'll never get it to the end. Number three, you need continuity to have power. Continuity means you know what to say and how to say it and when to say it, so you don't have to think about what you're saying. You can be thinking about the impact you're having right now on that person in front of you. If you don't have continuity, if you're not sure, that's, that's when you get into trouble. That's the value of a script. Sure, scripts take away a certain amount of spontaneity. But if you have a basic foundation of what you know you're going to say, it makes you much more powerful because you're not inside your head trying to figure out what to do. You're out here watching the impact you're having on the person you're communicating with, and it gives you tremendous power to influence. Step four, get commitments. 
Commitments are the basis of influence. Remember what we talked about in the process of unconscious influence, that once people make commitments, they begin to feel pressure to remain consistent with the commitments they've made. They've been taught their whole life that if you don't stay consistent with what you're saying, once you made a commitment, then people can't count on you, then there are all these negative ramifications. If you're consistent, then you're respected, you're trustworthy, you're all these positive things. So if you can get a customer or prospect to say yes to you about benefits of your product um, two or three or four or five dozen times, it's going to be very hard for them at the end of the sale to turn around and make a U-turn. You don't whip a U-turn with a Queen Mary. You don't all of a sudden turn around and go the opposite direction when you've been going 100 miles an hour one direction. You don't stop the train and flip backwards. It's not easy to do. I know the number one Century 21 real estate agent in the United States, as I told you earlier, what's his strategy? Get people to say yes to him a hundred times before he ever begins the presentation. He understands the power of commitments. So you want to get plenty of commitments. Yes, 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 like a train on a track. Get people where you can just look at them and, and they say yes to you. Then you have some real power. Next, you've got to make sure that you have enthusiasm. That ties into our, you know, putting people in state. Enthusiasm has power to transform. As simplistic as it may sound, having enthusiasm gives people a state change. Enthusiasm is catchy. Enthusiasm comes from the Greek word entheos, which means godlike. And if you can get yourself in an enthusiastic state every single time when you're in front of the customer, what's going to happen is that emotion you have is going to translate to them, and they're going to have similar enthusiasm for your product. And of course, the last two, sincerity. If you're not sincere, if people don't feel like you really care about them, you have little or no power to influence them. If they sense that there's anything that you're doing that's strictly for your interest and not theirs, you've lost the sale. So you've got to get yourself at the level where you really care about the stranger. And finally, step seven, close. And I don't mean what you're wearing, C-L-O-S-E. You've got to ask for the money. You've got a GTM, get the money as they say. If you don't do that, then the prospect loses and so do you. You've got to remember that every single time that you go out there and you work with someone and you try and persuade them, even if you don't think a sale's been consummated, a sale has been consummated. Either they've sold you on all their limitations and why they can't do anything, they've sold you on their limitations, in which case you both lose. They don't get your product or its values or its benefits, and you've lost your time, energy, and money as well. If, on the other hand, you can sell them, if you can persuade them, you can only do that if you can persuade them in a larger level of possibility. And if that happens, then hopefully, if you've done your job properly, you both win. That is, they get additional benefits in their life worth much more than what they've invested in time, energy, or money, and you've gotten the process of a new friend, a great number of referrals, a commission, and the opportunity to grow at a higher level as a human being. So those are the seven steps. What are nine tools of influence? Well, the nine that I would say are most powerful will be the following. And we've talked about all these, but we'll talk more about them. But I want you to just think about them as being your primary tools to influence people. Primary tool number one, rapport. The bottom line is, if you're going to have an impact that's long-term, not a short-term impact, people have got to feel this feeling of caring, that you have their interests in mind. And I know I've said this a lot of times, but because it's so important. People have to feel like you are like them. You've got to make that connection. You can, by threatening someone, or with a gun or anything else, persuade someone to change in the short term. But long-term change usually happens because someone has an investment in you emotionally. So you've got to develop rapport. And there are lots of ways to do it that we haven't talked about. How do you get that initial connection? Well, there are a lot of ways. One way to do it is to talk about something, obviously, of a mutual interest. Isn't that what you've always done? Another way would simply be to give somebody a gift. 
instantly you'll have rapport by inducing reciprocation. Another way is to ask them questions about some of their deep needs or some of their deep wants. Another way for you is to give them a referral. Sometimes you can get rapport by insulting somebody. I know that sounds ridiculous. It's not what I would encourage. But do you know that some people, that an insult builds rapport in some areas of our culture? Rapport is not, God, you're a great person. Rapport is, your mama. <laughs> and if you do that kind of thing, all of a sudden there's this rapport, there's this responsiveness. Certainly not what I encourage, but I want you to think creatively about what are all the ways that you can do that. Another way to do that is tell somebody a story. You can get in rapport by telling people a story, giving them some examples of things that have happened. Or another way would do is give them a sample of something. A lot of times that'll develop the rapport. Give them a compliment. Startle them again as a way to get rapport. You'll get their attention and all of a sudden there'll be this responsiveness. Remember, rapport means not necessarily that the person is totally excited, but that they respond to you. If you give somebody good service, even before you're their client, or vice versa rather, you're going to build rapport. And if you just listen to people, you cannot believe the amount of rapport. You know, you go out on a date and this person who's going out with you says, you know, what are you doing? You tell them, they say, God, that must be really interesting. And they ask you questions and they get you talking all night. And at the end of the night, you're in love. <laughs> you say, God, this person's so brilliant. I love this person so much. What a great conversationalist. Listening alone can build so much rapport, but that is the number one tool of influence. You need to align with people and be able to lead them in the direction you want to go. Pacing and leading. Second primary tool of influence is the use of questions. Questions provide for you a lot of things. Number one, they provide for you the opportunity to find out what's really going on in this person's head and what their real motivations are. Questions will help you find out their beliefs. And once you know what a person's beliefs are and how they make decisions, all you have to do is align with those beliefs and show them how buying is consistent with those beliefs. That's all selling is. Questions help you do things like do test closes. Where sure enough, you can find out how are you doing along the way. And questions take pressure off. See, if you ask questions, you don't have to carry all the pressure of the presentation. You're getting the customer involved with you. Also, asking questions shows that you really care about what this person is thinking. It builds more rapport. It induces reciprocation. There are so many benefits of questions. It is the second primary tool. I only put rapport higher because if you ask questions but don't have rapport, people won't answer your questions, if that makes sense to you. So questions can put people in state, questions can destroy objections, questions can ferret out objections. You need to become an excellent person at not only developing rapport, but asking excellent questions that lead people in the states where they want to buy. Third primary tool of influence that you have is your own personal congruency. Congruency means that people experience that what you say verbally and non-verbally matches. That when you say the word, yes, I can do something, your voice quality, your body postures, your facial expressions, and your words all come together and create one meaning. There is no doubt about what you really mean. Congruency is power, and it is a tool of influence. And the more you can develop congruency, congruency comes from feeling certain about what you're saying, feeling absolutely certain that what you're offering somebody is worth more than what you're asking for in return. And that congruency must be maintained daily absolutely critical that on an ongoing daily basis you rejuvenate it because otherwise the law of familiarity takes over and you lose some of that congruency. Remember the person who feels most certain is going to be the person who influences and that buying is just the transference of emotion and people need to feel certain that if they make this decision that they're going to get more pleasure and less pain. Fourth primary tool of influence is anchoring. All selling is nothing but anchoring. What is an anchor? Anytime a person is in an intense feeling state and something else happens consistently while they're in that state, something unique, the two, 
the state that they're in and that something else trigger get linked together. So that any time in the future the trigger happens, they go back into state. It's the old Ivan Pavlov technique, right? Ivan Pavlov took dogs, didn't feed them for several days. What happened? He created a need or a hurt. <laughs> then he put food in front of them. The minute they saw the food, food was something they already recognized. As soon as they saw it, hunger, saliva. At the peak, what did he do? Rang a bell, rang a bell. They're in a peak state, rang a bell. Peak state, rang a bell. Peak state, rang a bell. Pretty soon, he didn't need the food. He had transferred that emotion to a new product called the bell. He could just ring the bell and instantly had saliva. Now you say, well, I'm more intelligent than that. I don't believe in that stuff. The dogs didn't believe in it either, but it still works. It's how the human nervous system operates. Almost every television advertisement is nothing but the process of persuading you because they understand that people buy for two reasons. We either buy to gain pleasure. You know, why do you do anything that you do? Why do people go out and purchase certain clothes? Because by doing it, they think, well, they'll feel better. They'll feel more sexy or more attractive or more comfortable or more relaxed or more whatever, more prestigious. People buy to gain pleasure or they buy to avoid pain. Gosh, if I don't get that particular kind of outfit, everybody else has got it and I'll be left behind. Or I'll be wearing these stuff and they look good and I'll feel left out or I'll feel less than. People do things to avoid pain or to gain pleasure. So all advertising and all selling is, is linking the feelings that people want most in the world to your product or service. That's all you got to do. If you can give them the feeling that by using your product or service or purchasing it, they'll get what they want most in the world, they will buy. Cigarette advertisers have proven that. We've been, we've been caught and taught to feel emotional about dog food. We've learned to get positive feelings by buying a particular brand of dog food. That's the level of influence in our society. So that's what it is. And if you can also link that if you don't buy, it's going to mean pain, now you have the ultimate level of motivation. Whether you want to anchor or not, you are doing it all the time. When you walk in to be with a customer and you are in a lousy state because of something in your world or your life and you're trying to be happy, does the feeling you have transfer to them, yes or no? You bet. And when they start feeling lousy, and while they're feeling lousy, you talk about your product and you talk about your product and you talk about your product and talk about your product, guess what? Pretty soon when they think of your product, they have now linked the lousy feelings. They'll feel lousy. The same thing happens on the other side. The reason we say people buy you first the people by the salesperson before the product is you put people in a certain feeling state and while they're feeling it you talk about the product so if you walk in feeling great and you really care about this person and you make them feel wonderful and while they're feeling wonderful you show them or talk about your product they're feeling wonderful you show and demonstrate your product they feel wonderful you show and demonstrate the product pretty soon when they think your product they feel wonderful and when they feel wonderful they think of purchasing your product and they don't want you to take that away that is the process of selling so in order to do it effectively you have to know what states do people want most all states are not created equal. Some people want things like love more than anything. Some people want success more than anything. And if you try and link success to buying your product and what motivates that person is love, you're not going to be very motivational. You're not going to drive them. You've got to remember, it's different strokes or different folks. Anytime somebody's in a peak state, whatever's around them will get linked if it's done consistently while they're really in the state and if you do something unique. Parents learn to do it, right? As a parent, you probably have some looks you've learned to give your children. And the minute you give them that look, they have a state change. They know what it means. What you need to understand is that anchoring your prospect is critical. Anytime your prospect's feeling good, if at the moment they're feeling good, you just say, oh, that's excellent. And they're talking about something else, they kind of laugh and you go, that's excellent. Something else, they're feeling good, you go, oh, that's excellent. Pretty soon in the future, when you talk about the product, you say, so do you feel good like we could go ahead with this? What do you think? Do you think it'd be excellent? What you literally are doing is triggering them back into that state. 
So there are some tremendous opportunities through anchoring. And if you want to learn more about anchoring, you can come to one of our conditioning programs. Unlimited Power, the Science of Success Conditioning is all how to anchor yourself to be successful and how to anchor other people as well. It's an opportunity for you. But know that whether you know it or not, you're anchoring. And sometimes you're anchoring negatively. You're in a lousy state and you see your spouse's face and they're trying to cheer you up, but you don't change. You feel lousy, see their face. You feel lousy, see their face. You feel lousy, see their face. Pretty soon you see their face, you feel lousy. And that happens with products too. So you've got to be very, very careful about the states that you're in because what you link pleasure to and what you link pain to in your life determines your destiny. Long ago, I linked pleasure to public speaking. That's why I'm talking to you now. A lot of people link pain to it. They aren't here to chat with you. See, I linked pleasure a long time ago to disciplining myself, that there were two pains in life, either the pain of discipline or the pain of regret. And to me, discipline was going to feel good. And because of that, I have a lot of things in my life. Some people have linked getting an elevator to pain and they won't get into one. Some people have linked being in a relationship means pain and so they sabotage relationships because in the back of their head they think it's going to mean pain eventually. What you link pain to and what you link pleasure to controls and directs your destiny. Anchoring is your fifth, or excuse me, fourth powerful tool. Number five, pattern interrupts. Gosh, you got to realize that when people buy, what do they buy? They don't buy products. They buy states. They buy feelings. Sometimes people get in a state of mind or emotion where they get stuck, where they're not going to buy, or they're in an objection. If somebody's in a state where they know they're not going to buy, what you must do to be successful is not talk to them. As long as they're in a state where they're not going to buy, what you've got to do is break that state. You've got to interrupt that pattern of focusing. As long as they think about things that way, the way they're focusing on writing that pattern, they're going to stay in that state and you're not going to get through to them. You've dealt with kind of people that are just totally shut down, haven't you? So what you need to do is interrupt their pattern. And the way to interrupt somebody's pattern is do something that's totally unexpected. Do something or ask something. So if a person's sitting there and they're like, I'm not interested in this. Okay, I can appreciate that. Don't fight them. That's what they're waiting for you to do. Don't fight them. So I can appreciate that. Let me ask you a question. And you walk over here and you point to something and you ask a question about something else. It breaks their pattern. They focus on something else. They start to feel differently. Or you get them up moving around. You have them actually walk with you someplace or show you something. And when a person moves their body, they're changing the pattern of how they are feeling. The minute we change the way we use their body, we change our feeling instantly. So it's another way to break a pattern. Another way is to ask them a question off the top of their head. I remember one time I was in a selling situation and I was totally committed to marketing something to someone. I knew it would meet their needs and they kept saying, no, no, I'm just not interested, I'm not interested. And I said, well, what are the colors of your checks? And the person said, what? I said, what color are your checks? Are they blue? Are they white? The guy said, well, that's none of your business. I said, well, let me ask you this. Who do you bank with? Security Pacific? Bank of America? He said, well, all right, fine, I'll buy. I'm quite literal. This is a situation. For him, it was like fried his brain a little bit. Or sometimes what I'll do with somebody, they'll say, absolutely not. And I'll just smile at him. Or I'll go. <laughs> and all of a sudden, what happened is, it, they don't know how to deal with that. They know how to deal with somebody who gets disappointed or somebody who tries to fight them. But see, you must do the unexpected. If you keep interrupting their pattern, if every time somebody goes to do an objection, you do something the opposite of what they'd expect, you're even more friendly, you're even more supportive, they don't know how to deal with it. They don't have a, a patterned way to deal with you. You might, somebody says, well, I can't do this. You say, okay, I can appreciate that. Let me ask an important question, though. Would you eat a bowl of crickets for $40,000? <laughs> now you go, I can't ask a question like that in business. What are you, crazy? They're going to think I'm insane. You may be right. But I have to tell you that the top persuaders I know are infamous for the kinds of pattern ups they do. The person goes, what? You go, would you eat a bowl of live crickets for $40,000? And they'll look at you and go, what is that going to do? Just say, answer the question. And you smile. You say, well, yes or no. Why? 
Now, by the time they're told the answer to that, you say, okay, great. Now, do you want delivery on Thursday or Friday? If you can learn to do things that are fun and be playful, you cannot believe what you can do with customers if, if and only if, they really feel like you're playful and you're respectful. Interrupting people's patterns is a very, very valuable tool. And the quickest way to do it is ask questions or distract them or create an interruption. Anything that breaks their pattern. It's just like you're really caught up in something and somebody comes over and they interrupt you for a moment. They interrupt your pattern or conversation. They ask you a question and you come back and you go, what was it that we were talking about? Haven't you had that happen? Utilize that. So when somebody's got an objection, interrupt their pattern. Or they say, there's absolutely no way we can afford this. And you say, you're absolutely right. We better stop this conversation right now. That'll also interrupt their pattern. Be creative. There is no rule around pattern interrupts except this, that you have to make sure it's something someone doesn't expect what so changes their state. Once their pattern is broken, you can move on and do anything. But learn to utilize them. Number six, use the laws of unconscious persuasion. You've learned quite a few. Things like reciprocation, things like contrast, things like commitment and consistency, things like the because frame, things like double binds, or use the word or, when you say to somebody, do you want to stop doing this, or would you just rather do something else? <laughs> Either way, they say yes, and they've made the decision you want. That's called a double bind. Remember some of these tools, social proof, that when people are not sure what to do, if they see what other people are doing, they look to important other people and see what they're doing, and they'll do the same kinds of things. They use them as a guide for their behavior socially. Use some of these tools as well. And the last couple of ones I can offer you are seven, become excellent. A seventh major tool of influence is learning how to frame things. Sounds kind of like a weird distinction, framing, but what do I mean by that? Well, what I mean is how you feel about anything always comes back to the perspective you're looking at it, the frame you're looking at. If you're looking down on something, you're going to feel differently than if you're down and you're looking up at it. The way you frame things, what you tend to focus on in any experience, there may be all these activities, but the area you frame or focus on determines how you feel. In the process of persuasion, you must become excellent at framing, at taking all this kind of input that a person's trying to make a decision from and getting them to focus or frame on a small area and ask questions about that and get them to make decisions out of that. Because there's always, there are unlimited questions a person could ask about a product. There are unlimited fears a person could have. Your job is to learn to frame them. What are some of the frames you can use? One of them is called the as-if frame. I use this all the time in my own life. It works brilliantly with customers. If at any time you're talking to a prospect and they say, well, there's no way I can do this, one of the things to do is agree with them, of course, align with them, keep rapport with them, and then say, well, let me ask you a question. If we did do that, what might happen? Or let's just say we did work it out. Just suppose. That's called an as-if frame. Or if you said, the person said, I'm not going to buy. Say, I know you're not, and there's no chance of it, but let me ask you a question. If for some reason you had decided to buy, what changed your mind? And as simple as that sounds, it will blow your mind what happens. What happens is it makes someone frame things in their mind differently, perceive and experience them differently, and give you new results. There are three other frames that are critical. One of them I learned from a science called NLP, and the other two I created in studying the top communicators and persuaders in the country. And those three ways, and there are three ways, by the way, of handling objections, that's what framing is all about. The first way is called pre-framing. The second way is called reframing. And I'll explain what these mean, of course. And the third way is called deframing. What are these three? Well, the best persuaders I know do not wait to handle an objection, to wait for the customer to bring it up. The most powerful persuaders, the most influential ones I know of, all have one thing in common. They try to prevent objections by handling them in advance. 
They do what I call pre-framing. Pre, the best way to handle objection is pre-frame it, which means, let's say I'm a real estate salesperson and I want to sell you a home. And the home is 50 miles outside the city. And as a result, I know up front that there's a potential objection and what is it? Obviously, it's too far. So as long as I know that, I don't want to wait if I'm a professional persuader. I don't want to wait till we get out there. You look around, you kind of like some of it, and then you come up with this objection. Because as soon as you start to come up with an objection, you make it more real, and then if I convert it for you, you know, a little part of you says, uh, I don't know. I want to handle it before it ever gets solid. I like destroying objections when they're little. I call it kill the monster while he's tiny. <laughs> handle it that way. And the way to do that is I'd pre-frame you. Before we went out to the, see this property, I would tell you things that would make you focus, that is focus your attention on the benefits of the property, not the limitations. I would take the things you would think are limitations and make them benefits. I'll give you an example. If I have you right now look around this room and I have you look wherever you are and look inside your room and look for everything you can see that's brown, remember this example, because we've done this before, look at everything you can see that's brown, everything you see is brown right now, on clothing, on people around you, and then close your eyes and tell me everything in this room that's pink or that's green, or that's blue. And the process that happens is, as you open your eyes back up, is you didn't see as much. If you look now, you can see more of those colors. In other words, I pre-framed you. I told you what to look for. And so what we tend to do is just focus on a few things, and we delete others. We don't pay attention to everything. Good salespeople are excellent framers. They pre-frame. So what I would say is, let's say I know that one of your values is you really love the environment, and you hate filth and dirt, and you don't like things about the city. Then I'm going to pre-frame you. I'm going to turn the detriment of the property into a benefit up front before you ever have a chance to object. I'm going to say, you know what, I'm going to show you this property. It is absolutely incredible. It's the best buy. It's bigger and better than anything else I've seen out here. You'll get tremendous equity, but most importantly, it's 50 miles outside of this filthy city where you can be out there in the beauty and smell fresh air. And when you need to get here, you know, you can do that in 45 minutes or so, but you can stay out of the garbage here. Isn't that exciting? What I've done now is I've pre-framed you. And the whole way we're driving out, you're thinking about the benefits and seeing how, yeah, well, it's 50 miles, but yeah, I'm outside of that city. I've, I've controlled your focus, and selling is controlling focus. If somebody gives you an objection, it's for only one reason. They're focusing on some aspect of your product that makes them feel like they shouldn't buy. If you want to overcome the objection, change their focus by getting them to focus on a new question or a new way of looking at things. Pre-framing is a way of handling it up front. Reframing is something I learned in a therapeutic context through something called NLP. Reframing is how most people handle objections. What it is is somebody's got a problem and you change the way they're looking at it so it doesn't feel like a problem anymore. This would be the same scenario. I'm a real estate salesperson. We go out to see this property. We get out there and you like it and then you come to me and say, Tony, but we got a problem. And the problem is it's what? Too far. Well, my reframing would be to change the way you're looking at it. I would sit down with you and say, okay, well, do you really like the property? And you say, well, yeah, I really love it, but it's just too far, just too far out there. Then what I would do is change what you focus by reframing you, by making you relook at it in a new way. And I might say something like, well, is it how far it is that matters or how long it takes to get into the community that you want to go to? What I've done here is I've taken your objection and turned it into a question. The person says, well, I guess really what it is is how long it takes. That's what really matters. It's not how far. So then I say, well, how much more time do you think it'll take than the place you were thinking of possibly living? And they said, well, it might be taking another 20 minutes. I said, okay. Well, let's take a look at this. Let me ask you a question. Would it be worth 20 minutes more a day to be able to live where you want outside the filth of that city? Or would you rather have a 
20 minutes less each day and have to live there full time 24 hours a day. Which one do you think would be better? What you've done here is you've reframed it. You've made them refocus or reevaluate the situation in a new way. I like preframing better better because once somebody has got a feeling about something, it's a little bit harder to dislodge it. Certainly can be done. And most objection handling techniques you learned are forms of reframes. The third word that I've come up with to describe what I see top salespeople doing is something we call deframing. Deframing means you destroy the frame of reference. You destroy the way someone is looking at something, and it's a very powerful tool for influence, and you should not use it unless you consider yourself to be absolutely a high-powered closer who also knows the person's needs and knows absolutely they really want it, and the only thing stopping is fear, because this is a major player. Deframing would be to come in, and let's say we go out to the property, and you take a look at the property, and we're 50 miles outside the city, and you say, I really like the property, but we can't do it. We just can't do it. It's 50 miles outside the city, and there's no way. The deframe to that would be to destroy your frame of reference, destroy the way you're focusing about it. And the way to do that might be to say something like, if you believe this, say something like, well, I'm, I'm kind of half glad you're saying that, because I really don't know that you could qualify to live in this community. Whap. What? What are you talking about here? I can qualify to be here. Wait a second here. Now, number one, this will only work if you really believe what you're saying. You can't make stuff up. Two, you got to deliver it with real intensity and true. And what will happen is all of a sudden the whole focus is not on whether they want to buy or not. It's convincing you, of course I can qualify here. I absolutely can. You say, well, I believe you and I'm not certain because of this and this and this. This works very well in New York City for a co-op apartment. <laughs> and by the way, it's usually accurate as well. But the bottom line is deframing, destroy the frame of reference. All of a sudden, they're spending all their time trying to convince you that they can make it. Now they've bought. So a good example of this is politicians. I remember seeing Dan Rather and um, George Bush back in 1988 on television. They had a showdown. I don't know if you remember what happened. But Dan Rather was interviewing all these people, and he said, I want to interview all the Republican candidates, including George Bush. And both Bush and Dan Rather and their camps knew that they weren't exactly best friends. And so they both prepared. And what Bush's camp said is, we will not do a taped interview because we don't want him going back and reframing what we meant by taking things out of context and you know, making it look different. We'll do a live interview and that's it. Rather's group didn't like that, they finally agreed. Both groups came armed for the meeting. Dan Rather did a really good job of pre-framing George Bush in the light that I think he would like to. Now, I don't know, maybe I'm being overly harsh, but, and I'm not supporting either one of them, but his introduction to him went something like this. Ladies and gentlemen, two years ago in Lebanon, several hundred of our men were killed by militant people from Iran, by terrorists. Then, across the bloodied chests, and those are his words, across the bloodied chests of our servicemen, of our brothers, of our children, this administration sent arms to the Ayatollah. I just can't even understand this. Now, here's George Bush one of the heads of this administration. Now think about that. How's that for a nice preframe? Who is George Bush? He's a murderer of our own children. <laughs> kind of an interesting frame. George Bush immediately freaked out and tried to reframe the situation. That is, influence people to feel differently by changing the way they were looking or focusing at the situation. And what did he do? Well, he said, look, that's not the real question here. He said, I've already answered all those questions about the Iran-Contra thing. I think the American people are tired of that. And besides that, that's not what you even brought me here for, Dan. And Dan said, no, you haven't answered those questions. They started to go arguing back and forth. The reframe did not work. It did not change the general public's view of what had been put out at that moment. 
So George Bush has some pretty good staffers, I think, and they had prepared in advance a very strong D-frame. And good old George reached down and pulled out the big gun D-frame, pointed down rather and said, how would you like it if we judged your entire career by those 15 minutes when you left all of America blackened? And Dan rather had what we call a state change. <laughs> and he got very upset. And now the question was not George Bush's integrity, but Dan Rather's. Now, whether or not it worked long term is questionable. But it's a great example of using pre-framing, reframing, and deframing. And if you want to be a person of influence, whether it be with your children, whether it be in the area of sales, whether it be in politics, you want to be good at all of them. And by the way, your kids are already good at these. You watch them. I know my kids are. They're great at pre-framing. Dad, would you like some fresh squeezed orange juice? What do you want? <laughs> sure enough, I know something's coming. They're putting me in state so that I'll be able to hear their request in the best way. So think about framing as a major tool. And the last two things I've got for you, seven and eight are these. Seven is, seventh tool of influence is the way you use your time. God, if you do anything else in your life, you must, you must learn to manage your time because everything else we've talked about is worthless unless you spend most of your time eye to eye with the customer. When you're with the customer, 80% of your time should be having them talk, and 20% of the time is you talking. And in your day-to-day -day experience, you want to be eye-to-eye, -eye, not just on the telephone, unless that's specifically the kind of sales you do. The telephone is for appointments. The more time you can spend eye-to-eye -eye with a customer, finding their needs and attempting to really meet them, the more fun you'll have, the more power you'll have, and the more income you'll be able to earn. So it's critical that you manage your time. And most people do that by some form of time system where they manage their activities. I will tell you that I've designed a new time system. I hope you'll investigate it. And what's different about my system than any other system is we always have more activities than we can do if we're successful people, I believe. There's always more than we can possibly get to. And so what most people do is, you know, they focus on activities. And the problem is activity and work always expands the amount of time you give it. My whole program is designed, and even if you don't use it, think this way. I have myself focus on what are the outcomes I want, not the activities. What are the final results that must come out of this day? And by designing that, I come up with better activities and many times fewer activities. And behind that, I also design why I'm doing everything. Remember, everything in the sales program you're learning is that everything people do, they do for reasons. We need compelling reasons to do things. If I make a list of activities and I've got to make 50 phone calls and all I see is this massive list, my brain will go into overwhelm and go, oh my gosh. But if I see that in those 50 phone calls, there are five results I'm trying to get. One of the results is 10 of those calls are to make appointments, and the reason is it's a chance for me to go out and earn blank amount of income and have this kind of impact in my community. Now there's a reason behind what I'm doing. So if you're interested in our system, see us, but at the very least, you must design a plan daily that causes you to spend most of your time in front of the customer. This is critical because there's no power in this universe as strong as a salesperson who actually works in front of a customer six hours or more a day. Very few of them ever exist, but the ones that do that, asking for the money at those times, asking for the order, are incredibly successful and part of that group we call the 250 group, $250,000 or above. Lastly, state management. And that is state management requires that even if you do everything else that we're talking about here, even if you know every skill we've learned about and you manage your time well, but you don't manage your own emotions, you don't learn how to discipline your disappointments, if somebody cancels an appointment and here you planned your whole day and then you let that to put you into a state of frustration, that's going to hurt you because frustration, as little as it sounds like, frustration usually turns a positive attitude into a negative one. You go, well, why does a positive attitude matter? Well, maybe not for you, but here's why it should matter. A positive attitude turns, you know, someone's discipline into nothing. 
A positive attitude usually wipes out self-discipline, and discipline is the key to making anything work. So it's absolutely critical that you manage your emotional states, that you discipline disappointment, that you take things like rejection and turn them around so they empower you. And there are a lot of ways to condition yourself to make that happen. So these are the nine tools of influence that I think make the biggest difference. Number one, you've got to have rapport. Number two, make sure you use questions. Questions should be your best friend. Get good at them. Design tons of questions. Test closes. Questions that put people in state. Questions that make people happy. Questions for yourself to put yourself in state. All those aspects of questions. Thirdly, make sure you develop more congruency every single day. Fourthly, learn to be really good at anchoring. Master anchoring. We've got ways for you to do it, or you can do what you're already doing and just study what you're doing and make it better. Fifthly, make sure you interrupt people's patterns. If someone's in a state where they're not going to buy, don't keep talking. Interrupt their state. Change their state first so that you can really be successful. You can do it with your facial expressions. You can do it with questions. You can do it by interruptions. You can do it so many ways. Use the laws, six, use the laws of unconscious influence. Use reciprocation. Induce it. Use contrast. Use commitment and consistency. Use because frames. Think intelligently in using the tools that cause people to be compelled to follow through. Use the framing skills. Become excellent at framing people's focus, controlling what they focus on to help them make better decisions. Learn to use the as-if frame. Learn to use my idea of pre-framing and deframing, as well as the standard kinds of reframing of objections you've learned in the past. And manage your time effectively. Make it your goal every day to be in front of, say, three people who you want to help eye to eye. If you do that as a minimum, you can't believe what would happen to your income. Spend your time in front of the customer, making sales, not reorganizing, not on the road, face-to-face -face with the customer. The more time you spend there, the more you'll earn, the more joy you'll have, the more success you'll have. And make sure you manage you. Success comes from managing yourself. If you can't manage yourself, you certainly can't manage the customer and help them to make a difference. So what can I say to you in the end? I can say to you in the end, in terms of progress, in order to be effective, what you've got to be able to do besides these tools is you've got to be able to answer those questions that always pop up. What is it? What's in it for me? And can you prove it? Those are three questions the customer is going to be asking. And then once you've answered those initial ones, the questions they've got to answer, and you've got to answer for them, for them to want to buy are, will it really give me what I want and need? If I do this thing, will it be worth it? My inconvenience, my time, or my capital? What will other people say? Can I justify it? And lastly, do I really need it now? If you can answer those questions in advance, if you can use these nine skills, if you can consistently be able to put people in the states of getting what they want, where they have strong wants and strong justification, then the ability to influence people is your ability. The power to influence is yours right now. So I'd like you to take these skills with the person that you've been working with, with your buddy, and let's have you look at where is your level of skill in each of these areas. And even when you're done with this entire program, this is a set of nine skills I would encourage you to come back to again and again and ask yourself each week. This week, maybe I'm going to work just on questions. This week, I'm going to work just on getting my rapport. So what you can do is do a nine-week training program for yourself where each week, all week long, you work at getting better in these areas. You get work at better at managing your state, better at framing, pre-framing, reframing, and deframing. So I'd like you to make a commitment with your partner as to what you could do over maybe the next nine weeks to be good in each of these areas. Because a master of these is a mastery of that power we call influence. I'll see you soon. This program is continued on the next cassette.